My name's Jonathan Arrowsmith. I'm responsible, uh, I have co-responsibility for the private equity client group, and I'm also responsible for the M&A business uh, here at Investec. I will be your host for this session. Um, before we introduce the panel members, just a very brief um, reflection on the last uh, 12 months. Um, so since the last um, one of these sessions, um, this time last year, uh, it's been a, um, a very strong year for private equity. So if you cast your minds back to this time last year, we're in the teeth of the second major lockdown and everyone was feeling pretty miserable about life, although deal activity was happening uh, beneath the surface. I think what transpired for the rest of 2021 was um, an enormous amount of activity, both in terms of deployment for private equity, um, who were in large part um, catching up on sort of a hiatus, a six-month hiatus in terms of the deployment levels in 2020. So there was a bit of catch-up in terms of deployment, but a lot of activity there. And then also a significant amount of exit um, activity uh, through either IPO, uh, through trade sales, um, through secondaries or tertiaries, um, and also um, for private equity uh, reinvesting in their own uh, businesses, typically alongside third-party capital. So uh, we saw a lot of exit activity as well, particularly for those assets that were somewhat pandemic resilient um, or even had received some benefits from the pandemic and found some new ways to grow more quickly and therefore um, sponsors were taking a, a advantage of that uh, uptick in performance. So a strong 2021 backdrop um, and yeah that is the the platform off which we seek to look forward to 2022. Um, what I'd like to do now just briefly is um, uh, introduce our panel uh, members. Uh, so uh, we have Jonathan Harvey, he's a senior practitioner within the fund solutions business. We have Helen Lucas, she's a senior practitioner within the leverage finance business. And we have Emily Sivian, who's a senior practitioner within the private bank. So what we've sought to do on this call is bring uh, bring into their conversation the full breadth of the Investec proposition to the private community. So what I'd like to do is start the session off by um, going to our three panel members, John, Harvey, please, uh, you first. Just keen to get your sense as to sort of the current sentiment within the private equity industry currently. Yeah, thanks, Jonathan. I think um, there's a couple of points probably on my side. One around growth and perhaps where, where we're likely to see some of that growth going forward. I think if you look if you look back, you know, PE has grown significantly over the last few years. And I think a lot of that um, growth has been sort of underpinned by people looking for, um, you know, investors looking for increased yields in what has been a sort of a low yield environment. Um, you know, we're now moving into a sort of a world where, you know, we've got rising rates across, you know, across the board, um, a higher inflationary environment. Um, so what does that mean for growth going forward? I think, you know, my view is that actually it's hard to see for PE the growth slowing down because I think actually COVID's been broadly positive for PE-backed companies. Um, you know, and PE itself has come out of COVID, you know, proving itself to be quite resilient and provide sort of stable returns in the sort of, you know, medium to long term. So I think that, yeah, a rising interest rate environment will no doubt take money away from certain areas, but I can't see it coming from PE, um, per se. Where we're likely to see that growth come off a little bit, in my view, is probably more in the growth sector. Um, if you look at the NASDAQ, that's off a high of 13, it's down 13% off a high in November. So you're already in sort of, you know, correction territory there. And, you know, a lot of the growth sector assets that are yet to be EBITDA positive will suffer in a higher interest rate environment. I think if you take a subsection of where that growth is going to come in the next year, I think the area I'd be most excited about is probably in the mid-market. Um, 
mid-market PE, you know, you take the Bridgepoint IPO as an example this year, mid-market PE is suddenly starting to attract, you know, institutions looking for more um, investment-grade equity, investment-grade debt, which was, you know, previously the preserve of the KKRs of the world. So I think all in all, probably an exciting outlook going forward. Thanks, John. Um, over to you, Helen. Yeah, morning, everyone. Uh, well, it's been a strong start to the year already this year, and I think we're seeing the pace of activity from last year um, keep up, which is certainly keeping us busy. What we are seeing, however, is a varied recovery profile in underlying corporates split by sector and industry. And in some cases, this is leading to a more sort of art than science approach to assessing debt capacity. But the provision of debt remains robust and the competition for the best assets certainly remains high. So I think we'll continue to see leverage a key feature for 2022. Uh, as John mentioned, we, we certainly do have one eye on interest rates rising in the slightly longer term, uh, as this will cause the overall borrowing cost to increase. And we might start to see heavy, heady leverage levels begin to be pared back. Or perhaps people will start to include more highly structured or, or pick facilities to address the issue. Certainly one to watch. Thank you, Helen. Um, and over to you, Emily. Morning. Um, so I think if we think about things from an individual perspective, for our clients, faster than deployment, uh, faster than expected deployment for funds, particularly in the healthcare and B2B tech space, has meant and continues to mean that some individuals are facing a pinch point having to fund co-invest before distributions are made. Um, we're seeing a real, very real need to make a liquid assets more liquid. So people are thinking about property via mortgages, revolving facilities secured against main homes, or alternatively, people are looking to borrow against investment portfolios, ultimately leveraging assets so as not to incur the opportunity costs of liquidating for the sake of what is probably only a few months. Um, also, given buying agents that we work with tend to suggest a kind of five-year hold period for central London assets and observing that there's been a decline since 2014, they think that they were in a, you know, a position to look for a positive five-year ahead um, in the property market and activity levels so far imply that they're absolutely right. That's great. And I think I might just add my own sort of perspective on the M&A market. Um, we think 2022 will be a good year, um, perhaps not quite as strong as 2021, but we think you know, not at dissimilar levels. Um, what we see is, is that the assets coming out of private equity at the moment are typically those that aren't quite as pandemic resilient as those that came in 2021. So they need a slightly longer track record to prove their pandemic resilience and actually their path out of the pandemic. Um, but what we are interestingly seeing is that continued proliferation of exits. So in the past, private equity would have primarily sold to um, private equity or trade. But now, increasingly, we're seeing more conversations around IPO exits and also um, uh, the use of continuation vehicles and, and funds rolling uh, investments into new funds alongside third-party capital. Uh, we're seeing an increasing number of exits down, the, down those two routes. So um, uh, we, we hope to see uh, a good level of exit activity, not dissimilar to that of 2021, uh, but we are seeing it across uh, more than the sort of classic two channels that pre the pandemic were, were sort of largely used by private equity. So um, I think that covers the first topic we wanted to pick up, which is kind of current market sentiment um, around uh, private equity um, sector. The second one we want to pick up is talent. So um, increasingly um, within investment banking, within private equity, within many industries, talent is uh, coming to the forefront of 
concerns around growth and how do you grow your business without the right talent at the center of it. So uh, we're seeing that within the private equity industry. There's a lot of new funds being raised. There's a lot of new hires happening. There's people being um, moved across from one fund to another. Um, yeah, Emily, can we just get your views on sort of where you're picking that up from a private banking perspective around some of those senior and junior transfers within the private equity industry? Sure. Um, at a personal level, it, you know, it can mean great things, um, I suppose. It ultimately translates into a clear pattern of bigger buyouts and comp offers, both being used as a retention strategy um, and as a hiring tool. So recently, we've discussed more cash sign-ons, and then we've also discussed guaranteed cash distributions that might be deferred over, you know, one, two, three years. Ultimately, for people, this significantly impacts their, you know, projected balance sheets and gives rise to consideration of how to best efficiently kind of use that cash, how to put it to work, and then how well diversified they are in the plans that they're making. Um, and then on the flip side, in the interest of retaining individuals, senior management teams are definitely considering more and more how to look after their best talent and coming forward to discuss solutions that are available to multiple individuals who are looking to solve for cash flow issues when they're funding commitments. And actually, so what we've got here is a, a live audience question. So, John, I might just come to you with this one. But, um, yeah, as we're seeing sort of... Um, yeah, GPs raising ever larger funds with broadly sort of static percentages in terms of requirement for co-invest across um, across the sort of investment team. Yeah, how are you seeing sort of um, more innovative solutions coming through to allow those junior members to participate in the co-invest um, as a result of these now larger requirements? Yeah, I think there's, there's a couple of things really. I think the, the talent aspect um, on the junior end is, you know, particularly interesting from a sort of a banking perspective i think um you know historically it's been very difficult for the bank um or a bank to sort of you know judge what can be quite lumpy income profiles um for very junior members of staff um however you know a lot of a lot of um these junior members come on to become senior partners in the future um you know and therefore can be um you know good quality clients um for many sort of banks i think as the industry's grown up, what we're seeing now is people have a greater appreciation. Uh, those people that have a, you know, a good feel for private equity in general, a greater appreciation for individuals' um, earning profiles and how to apply them from a risk perspective. I think this applies more broadly too. So we're seeing real level, real asset level wage inflation putting pressure on the bottom line of companies that are quite human capital intensive. Uh, and I think we fully understand the competition for certain sectors like tech. Um, and I think it also this can impact PE through competition for top management teams and board level positions, which also ultimately drives up further cost pressure for businesses. Thanks, Helen. Great. So um, moving on to um, third sort of major topic, um, COVID-19. Um, you might have heard about it, but it's... Um, something that's been impacting us for a little while. Um, of course, there's still uncertainty about COVID-19 and the path out of COVID-19. I think everyone generally believes that we're on the path out rather than still in the middle of it. Um, but it's the, um, the speed of the path out and the bumpiness of the path out that is particularly sort of interesting um, as we sort of plan ahead. Um, but it's just keen to sort of get the views of the panel around sort of realistic levels of activity in 2022 with that COVID uncertainty still present 
albeit sort of waning. And in the first instance, I'd like to come to you, Helen. Yeah, so perhaps a, a new feature that we're seeing as part of the COVID recovery is the divergence between debt and equity. So equity has always been a forward-looking assessment, and this remains relevant and perhaps has led to new opportunities. But debt's a more traditionally retrospective assessment, and that's much more challenging when there's been a period of disruption in the market. And the impact of that is felt on structuring EBITDA and therefore ultimately on debt quantums. I do think this is tempered, however, by the abundance of debt in the market at the moment. And, and there will always be a middle ground that is found through creative structuring and solutions like ABL where it's applicable as well. Yeah, and I think um, from an M&A perspective, why don't I just give my views on sort of uh, COVID-19. As John alluded to earlier on, there's been a, a, a larger correction that has subsided somewhat in the technology sector, um, which is flowing through the rest of the, the market. When you look at those sort of public market comps, the read crosses are, uh, are really very, uh, very strong, and therefore that flows through into the private market in terms of pricing. So we have seen some very, very strong pricing on assets in 2021, in part, as, as Helen says, because the debt packages are being punchy and full, but also because the uh, view on the equity um, growth is significant as well. So we are seeing those two things combining to get some very full pricing, as full pricing as we have seen in some of the sectors uh, that we operate in around healthcare services, financial services, fintech, technology, etc. I think in 2022, you know, it, it would be... Um, It'd be brave to say you think they're going to go up because we're already at very high levels. But I would imagine that we will see sort of levels that aren't dissimilar from um, from, from those of 2021, um, in particular for the very best assets. So I think there is a view within the private equity community that you will pay up for businesses that are top quartile, top decile, because they have that resilience. They have proven themselves during the pandemic. But then on top of that, they have significant growth potential. And even if they don't hit their plans within three years, as anticipated, they will still go on and hit them in year four and year five. So therefore, those absolute returns can still be delivered, even if you pay slightly higher valuations for them. So I think that's um, that's the summary from the M&A side, which is that we think the pricing was very toppy um, in 2021. Uh, and we think it may continue. We'd be surprised if it goes up, but it may do in selective situations where you have um, very strong premium assets. I think um, from my side, I think... Um I'd agree with what Helen's saying that there's, you know, it, we're not, we're coming out of COVID and, you know, but it's, it's still a little bit uncertain around what the, the look forward looks like in terms of asset performance, you know, and I think what we're seeing on the, you know, fund solution side a little bit is, you know, people thinking more and more around secondaries opportunities, continuation vehicles, you know, over the last 12 months has been a, a you know, significant uptick in single asset continuation vehicles. And a lot of this, in my view, has been driven, you know, just because people don't want to let go of assets that they feel are quite good, but perhaps haven't quite got as good as they can get just yet. Um, you know, with the increased sort of investor demand in the market, you know, people can roll these into continuation vehicles quite easily. Yeah. And John, I was on a, I was on a call yesterday with a private equity um, uh, firm who were talking about their transition over the last few years from sort of typically sort of yeah, owning assets for five years towards taking a much longer term view about those assets in particular where they have good ones, which means that they can see themselves owning assets for up to 15 years. But obviously through different sort of um, versions of that asset, you've got sort of the first five years and then you flip into a continuation vehicle or a new fund and, and then again after that. So... 
I think this may well be the advent of private equity taking longer term positions on certain assets that are performing very strongly for them. Um, just coming back to John, there is there is another question that's just come in, which is very fun solutions uh, specific, which I think you've you've kind of picked up a little bit of, but perhaps we might just make it a bit broader within fund finance. Yeah, outside of uh, those continuation vehicles that you've just uh, discussed, but we're just keen to sort of understand some of the some of the sort of innovations that are coming through the fund finance arena. Uh, potentially around sort of the uh, MFA facilities, the sort of, um, you know, the cap call lines and sort of the expansion of those in terms of the amount of the um, uh, the amount of the fund size that they typically represent. But other sort of areas of fund finance that you're seeing sort of innovation coming through because private equity increasingly is accessing that fund finance to, uh, to help it boost its returns. Yeah, I think, um, you know, I think it's a very good question. I think, um, you know, innovation doesn't really stop in the sort of PE world. You know, I mean, even having worked in fund finance for the last 12 years, we did a transaction last year, which was um, one that, you know, we've never seen before or never thought was was possible. But, I mean, these things continue to come and come and go on a more sort of ad hoc case by case basis. I think where we're seeing the real innovation is on the growth side, you know, where um, increased fund sizes, increased demand from investors you know, is is pushing the um, you know the, the capital that banks can provide to to limits. You know, um, with you know capital call facilities that get it increasingly bigger. Um, you know, the innovation really is coming around. How do you institutionalize some of that that debt? Um, you know, and bring institutions into the fund financing market in in more general um, to take up some of the. Um, demand that is, exists and overflows from uh, where banks can cope with. Thank, thanks, John. Just a question um, that's just coming from the floor. This is probably for you, Helen. Um, you mentioned it earlier on is that the, you know, the funds continue to play uh, an increasingly um, strong uh, role within the, the broader leverage finance market. Um, and yeah, what I was keen to sort of understand, or what I think the question is keen, um, the provider of the question is keen to understand is, you know, how do we see that playing out in 2022 and beyond? Do we see the funds continue to be strong, or do we see some of the banks fighting back with, um, with sort of off-balance sheet financing capability alongside on-balance sheet? Yeah, I think it's a, it's a really interesting one. And then absolutely, the funds will remain strong in this market as we see sort of more and more funds being raised, larger and larger funds as well, chasing uh, larger and larger assets. Um, as for sort of banks fighting that, absolutely. And I think what we're starting to see is, is that sort of partnership approach between banks and other providers of capital. So the banks are now being able to speak for bigger check sizes, for example, and compete, I guess, more with the, the uni-trans providers or private debt funds that we're seeing in the market. And it's certainly something that we're very keen on here in Investec. And I think we should also just keep in mind that banks offer something different and are sort of more open to redraw facilities or undrawn facilities and certainly super senior structures as well. So I think there's a, a certainly a need for the market to have that um, that variation of product availability, if you like. And, and sorry, Emily, in, in terms of our own approach towards sort of making sure that we have that capacity to help support our most um, you know, our clients who are growing, uh, you know, strongly and, and require that access to debt, typically through M&A strategies. Um, you know, 
we, we are we are sort of making sure that we have a strategy that enables us to uh, to deliver on that. Um, I think if we think about kind of how does investor private client um, approach uh, individuals that work in the industry, and there's a very kind of cyclical nature to to having to um, manage commitments upcoming, kind of deferred um, income carry that's that's due. Um, what we've tried to do is is make sure that we're there for each stage of kind of personal balance sheet management. So whether that be when, you know, commitments are, are upcoming, we can think about um, building in that opportunity to leverage various assets, looking at the entire balance sheet. And then as you come into kind of increased liquidity, it's what are we going to do with that? How can we help you to make sure that that is going to grow um, alongside the way, you know, that you're, you're inevitable growth um, from a private equity kind of return perspective. Um, and then as we're building that kind of overall piece, I suppose, um, it's taking into account the timeframes around that. So have you got upcoming commitments in kind of two years, five years? What do you need to put to one side? Have you got um, cash coming back to you in that kind of two year, five year, 10 year period? Can we build something that allows you to make intermittent um, kind of overpayments and also, um, you know, pay off tranches of your solution, of your debt that mean that it actually effectively matches those current and projected cash flows. Thanks, Emily. Thanks. Um, and I think um, perhaps I might just come to sort of John, which is, you know, a again, just sort of summary, wrapping up a little bit in terms of looking forward before we go to some of the other Q&A that's come in. But what else can we expect from 2022 and beyond? Uh, I know we've talked a lot about sort of some of the trends that we see coming through, um, and, and Emily's just sort of summarised those. But I think, you know, John and or Helen, is there anything else that we need to be thinking about for the private industry around leverage finance or around fund solutions that um, you know, we think are pertinent to not only 2022, but slightly further on uh, beyond that? I think, um, you know, we've not been interested, actually, in your view as well, Jonathan, but we've not touched on it, but the IPO of Bridgepoint, you know, um, last year, you know, it was, you know, a bit of a game changer, really. And there's not, I don't think there's many GPs out there that haven't sat down and put a bridge point valuation on their own um, own firm, particularly in the mid-market, and come up with probably quite a strong, strong number. Um, yeah, that, that, that changes the dynamics in the mid-market quite a lot. And obviously, you know, bridge point went down a, a long road, I would imagine, to get to that point. But it I would have thought that has certainly started accelerating the thinking amongst some of the mid-market firms in terms of succession, you know, getting liquidity into the management company to expand um, beyond where that's been before. So I, I do think that is quite a, a significant step forward, particularly in the mid-market. As I said earlier, these were the things that were the preserve of the KKRs of the world historically. Yeah, and, and perhaps, um, perhaps I might pick that up in a second, but... Helen, just uh, come to you first yeah. in terms of sort of anything we haven't picked up in terms of sort of yeah, reaching forward 22, 23 in terms of those trends that we think are going to be relevant and pertinent to the private industry. Yeah, I think just, just one that I perhaps haven't mentioned so far is there's still a real appetite for buy and build uh, in the market at the moment. And I think um, from our side, we're seeing sort of a lot of requests for facilities to facilitate that sort of M&A profile. Uh, and whether that's sort of undrawns or redraw type facilities to to help uh, M&A, you know, to help them to deliver the M&A plan, if you like. I think that's that's a real trend that will continue for this year as well. Okay, thanks, Helen. 
Um, so just coming back to sort of, uh, John, your IPO uh, point, what I might do is I might sort of cut that question into two. So I talked about earlier on sort of the, um, the increasing use of the IPO exit route for private equity. Um, and then the second bit that I will tackle, I think, is, is, is your point, John, which is um, yeah, private equity GPs actually floating and uh, yeah, getting access to the public markets. Um, the first one, yeah, we are seeing um, increased number of inquiries and then uh, flotations um, by private equity. So yeah, the number of funds that typically have not floated in the past but are now thinking about it because they've seen other competitors do it and also because their asset base is growing. So you know, like all funds, the funds that they're raising are ever larger typically. And as they become larger, what that means is, you know, the exit EBDAs grow as well. Instead of being a sort of 10, 50 million EBDA exit, increasing their portfolios have got 50 million pound uh, EBDA uh, companies in there. And so therefore, um, what that does is it means that the IPO route becomes much more viable. And so therefore, we are having numerous conversations with people about the exit of the assets that in the past, they would not have considered IPO as exits, primarily as a result of the asset growth. Um, and I think what the IPO exit route does is is that it um, it is different than sort of selling to uh, private equity, another financial investor, and it is different to trade as well. So you need to have that understanding as to how those different processes work, those different valuations work, those different uh, levels of appetite for the different sector um, sector assets work. So yeah, here at Investec, we're fortunate in that we have a um, we have an IPO. Um, we have an ECM business that enables us to IPO assets, as well as an M&A business that enables us to sell um, to private equity and trade. So therefore, we can give people a full appreciation as to the pros and cons of exiting down those different routes. Um, so that's the first point, which is we expect there to be more IPO activity uh, over the coming years as all those private equity uh, portfolios grow. The second point, John, is your very uh, relevant one, which is about GPs seeking to access the public markets um, uh, for... Um, succession reasons, uh, or even for uh, funding reasons in, in relation to ensuring that they have the uh, capital available for the co-invest requirements for the ever-increasing funds. So uh, we do see more of that happening. Uh, Bridgepoint, uh, as you said, um, came to market uh, in 2021, very successfully came to market in 2021. And as a result of that, there has been a number of conversations that we've been having, as I'm sure other people have been with uh, private equity funds who have got um, significant assets under management. I think there are certain uh, amounts of assets under management that you need, which obviously drives the amount of recurring revenue that the fund can see uh, from those uh, funds in place. And therefore, that recurring revenue is sort of um, the core to the quality of earnings that the public markets reward and value. Um, obviously, what then happens is is that the um, you know the uh, the management of the GP the mm -hmm. Uh, the people, um, the private execs are able to access that listing to free up cash to enable them to invest back in the funds. And so, uh, yeah, we're seeing uh, that as an increasingly uh, interesting way to facilitate that cash flow. Um, in the past, where there has been big requirements, sometimes there's been the need for uh, private investors to come into that GP to facilitate that cash flow uh, requirement. Uh, but we are seeing, uh, as has been demonstrated by the Bridgepoint IPO, um, increasing consideration of, um, of going public to do that. The issue for private equity generally when we talk to them about going public is disclosure and um, you know, making sure that um, they understand the requirements of the public markets and all of the information that they need to, um, to provide, um, which 
in a previously very private industry uh, sometimes causes um, concerns amongst those, um, those senior decision makers. But that, I would say, is the sort of the, uh, the perspectives around the IPA market with respect to the assets and the GPs. Um, so just going back to the questions, um, aha, I've got one here. Actually, I've got a few, so let me just make sure that we get this right. Um, so I think this probably comes to you, Helen. Um, how do you see the comply? Uh, how do you see the not comply? The, how do you see the supply chain constraints caused by COVID having a long-term effect on refinancings and the meeting of business plans by private equity? How do you mitigate for this? How do the funds look at this? How does PE look at this? So let's just start off, I guess, with um, you know, your assessment from a leverage finance perspective, um, you know, and sort of how you are reviewing plans and the different scenarios, downside, mid case, upside, in connection with uh, lending to businesses that have uh, COVID impacted supply chain constraints. Yeah, and I think this is, for certain sectors, this is a, a key issue for them at the moment. And I think that we probably spend a lot of brain power when we're looking at businesses in those kind of sectors, both assessing the risk and then trying to structure around it. Um, and one of the ways we seek to achieve that is using more asset-based lending facilities where you've got that variability around uh, sort of the supply chain, if you like, and certain inventory or, or receivables, et cetera, and how you can vary the the debt facilities with, with that kind of activity as well to give them some flexibility in their debt structures where this becomes problematic, um, particularly when, when coming out of a recovery, actually, and there's a real requirement for working capital to make the business grow again. Um, so I would say that there's, there's a thoughtfulness required around how you put those structures in place. Um, and, and then I think it comes down to sort of the individual business as to, as to how long term you think that will be. Uh, and whether you can take a view on that. But but certainly the answer to the question, I think, is yes, we spend a lot of time thinking about it for certain sectors. And there will be some at the moment that it actually uh, limits the amount of debt that they can take on until that sort of evens out and levels um, going forward. Yeah. And John, Harvey, I might just come to you because I guess whilst Helen is typically, you know, looking at how they make the debt packages flexible at the asset level to ensure that, the business is able to cope with some of those short-term or even longer-term sort of supply chain shocks. How, how are they thinking about uh, leverage and financing at the GP level when they have a series of assets underneath them, some of them which may be impacted by this, some of them which may not? Are, are they trying to introduce more flexibility into those packages to enable them to cope with potentially sort of greater short and longer-term shocks? Yeah, I think, I think so. I mean, if you look at the element of business, which I guess really you know, is, is more along the sort of NAV financing where we're looking at a, a sort of a portfolio of assets. Um, you know, I guess what we're seeing there is a, a level of uncertainty, um, you know, around sort of, you know, timing of exits and underlying performance of some assets, which I guess is leading to pressure um, in terms of how some of those facilities get repaid. Um, you know, and by that, I mean, you know, the sort of cash sweep element of those facilities, which normally happens when an asset gets sold, you know, there are increasing pressures from borrowers to be a little bit more flexible around that side of things because some of the underlying assets performance is still to be determined. Um, 
you know, and the effect of COVID and you know, the supply chain and issues that Helen touched on um, has yet to come through. So people, you know, it, particularly in these NAV facilities are approaching them, I guess, a, a little bit more cautiously, um, you know, whereas it, uh, perhaps um, previously, you know, they, these were approached in a, perhaps a bit more aggressive um, manner. But I think the other thing to add into where, you know, assets are, you know, going through some issues or, you know, the, the long-term sort of prospect for the assets is still only really being assessed by the GP and the management team sort of at, at this point in time is that, you know, people are looking in, increasingly towards continuation vehicles as a view to getting that equity into these assets if they've got a positive sort of long-term view um, of them. Whereas, um, you know, you know, the short-term element of some NAV facilities have become less appealing, I guess, given some uncertainty around asset performance. Yeah. Okay. Thanks, John. Um, the next question is, um, um, I think it might be to you, John, it could well be to me, but um, why don't I read it out first of all, and then we can work out um, how we tackle it. Um, it is, do you have a view on private equity in the IFA sector, so the independent financial advisor sector, and whether this will flip into a long-term hold, or do you think they will still be short-term holds? Um, why, why don't I just have a very quick uh, go at that, and then, and then John, please chip in as you see fit. I think... Um, I think, you know, in terms of the IFA sector, we, we're big fans of the IFA sector, both from an M&A perspective, from a GLF perspective, where we have a, a number of lens out uh, into the into businesses in the IFA sector, and also from a fund solutions perspective, when we have um, uh, private equity funds that are focused in part on the IFA sector or our financial services focused uh, funds and therefore have much bigger exposure to the IFA sector. So I think as a... As a bank, we're, we're very positive on the IFA sector. And the reason is, is that yeah, that wealth sector uh, is just going to grow at the level of sophistication in terms of um, uh, you know, the, the, the funds that people can invest in. The proliferation of those funds is going to grow. And so, therefore, having an intermediary that sits behind that significant wealth growth and the increasing complexity of the market is, is no doubt uh, going to be important. And if anything, we see... Um, you know, regulation still being key, and therefore regulated sectors where you need that IFA through which you can um, you can you can buy that uh, those wealth products. I think is um, is an interesting sector for us, no doubt. Um, so I think the fundamentals are pretty solid. Therefore, what that means typically is when you look at the revenue models and the earnings models, they're very high recurring. I think once people have their um, their preferred IFA, very very difficult for them to switch out, and so therefore we see enormously uh, strong business models with high recurring revenue. Not so much growth because it's very difficult to go and win new clients, but the underlying uh, resilience of those assets um, is strong. And therefore, from a debt and from an equity perspective, we enjoy. Uh, banking them and we enjoy selling them um, and we enjoy supporting them on m and strategies. Uh, the market is very sort of um, fragmented, so therefore there's an enormous consolidation play which will be attractive. So what does that mean? I think what that means is when you have those characteristics, recurring revenue, the business will move forward, even if it doesn't move forward, it's sort of, you know, um, yeah, massively exciting growth. You just know that it will continue to um, to be a good growth business. We think, therefore, that fits the characteristics of longer-term holds rather than shorter-term holds. And I would be I would be staggered if private equity um, don't start holding IFA businesses, wealth businesses, for longer periods of time. Um, John Harvey. Historically, we've not seen um, you know wealth managers or IFAs 
as a large proportion of um, companies within, if you look at our whole book, the, the whole book that our funds are investing in. It. Um, you know, I'm not quite sure of the reason why, um, but typically, you know, the, the mid-markets or buyer funds we deal with have been, you know, steered towards perhaps uh, slightly higher growth sectors. Um, yeah, but that said, you know, for the main reasons you've just said, Jonathan, you know, in the last 12 months, we have seen a number of sort of um, clients come looking to buy up smaller asset managers across Europe with a, a view to sort of running a consolidation model. Um, you know, so whether that pans out into a longer term hold for them or, or not, I'm not particularly sure on other than, um, you know, they're being perhaps increased investor appetite. Um, for these types of businesses. Okay. Thank you, John. Um, got one, um, probably one more question and then I'll wrap up. But uh, Emily, to you, um, just sort of moving back into that private banking um, uh, part of the market, in particular private equity uh, execs who, who are banking with us here and, and more broadly within the market, but where probably values have increased and uh, yeah, looking, and if people are looking to increase a mortgage but basic salary hasn't risen, yeah, how would you borrow more? So just picking up some of the sort of specifics and some of the certain circumstances that are sort of yeah, coming through the, the property market at the moment and people combining that with their ability to leverage um, based on basic salary and potentially sort of other fund remuneration. Sure. Um, I mean, if we're going to take into account kind of Stratton Parker's resi forecast that the UK property market's going to grow by 7% in 2022. Um, I think we're probably going to spend a lot of time this year talking about how individuals can make the most of the outperformance and ultimately release equity from property assets for further property investments or investment in funds. Um, if there's not been a, a move in basic salary, then a lot of the high street lenders will struggle to kind of increase that debt quantum. Um, the way that we would do it is we would look to kind of other streams of income, as you allude to. So we look at the value of co-invest that's kind of in the ground. We'd look at um, track records over the last three years. We'd look at your current comp, projected comp as far as we can. Um, if we know a fund and, and we're confident about performance, then, you know, we can look to distributions expected from, uh, from carry pools. And ultimately, it means that we're not just reliant on that basic income. So it's all of the bonus elements that come as part of that private equity kind of comp package that means that you, you're not pinned on just a kind of year-on-year -year base salary rise. Um, okay, so I think uh, we only have a very short period left, so um, uh, it's now time to, to wrap up. Um, I think sort of distilling everything that we've heard from the panel today, um, I think private equity go into 2022 in rude health. Um, given we've had two years of disruption from the pandemic, um, your private equity has weathered the storm well. Uh, John mentioned it earlier on. Returns have been strong. Uh, I think, if anything, this means that broadly asset managers will be seeking to deploy more money to the private equity um, channel than less. Uh, and you're seeing that all the time through ever-increasing funds, but also capacity for um, co-invest, um, so investments around the side of managers that are particularly well-liked by LPs. So we think that um, as we go into 2022, there's a lot of money to be deployed. There's a lot of uh, requirement for careful consideration about the debt packages that 
um, investors put into those assets to make sure there is an additional degree of flexibility than what's probably been um, uh, included previously in 2021 and 2020 and prior to that. And so we, th- we see the people deploying capital, probably not at dissimilar levels to 2021, but perhaps being a bit more thoughtful around entry price and also debt packages. Um, behind that, we think the use of IPO and continuation vehicles will continue to grow as a bona fide and accepted exit route uh, for those private funds. And as Emily said, you know, what we're seeing is that increasingly execs, senior and junior, are being required to think thoughtfully about how they fund their co-invest in the uh, ever-increasing funds that um, are being raised. And yeah, we are an investec and elsewhere in the market being more creative around how we can um, yeah, find the assets, whether that be current balance sheet or future balance sheet, such that we can provide the leverage against that. So um, we see a lot of activity. We see a lot of activity across our business and across the private equity market. And, you know, we just want to reiterate to everyone that we're here to support.